my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thank you for having me again. It's great to be back with you. Um, if you were here last week, you will remember that last week we were looking at Jesus' command to the disciples to go, to go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, what's otherwise known as the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. They were called to continue Jesus' work, to, to go, and they did. And we know, history tells us, that they turned the the known world upside down. Those earliest disciples heard Jesus' command to go, and they went. But they didn't go in a vacuum. And they didn't go alone. What I want to look at today is what they needed in order to go. What did they need to know? What did they need to have? And through that, What do we need to have today and to know to be a people who go in 21st century Britain? I think we see two clear things from this passage. The first thing is to go in the knowledge of the resurrection. For people to go with the gospel, they need to know that Jesus is alive. I mean, that's pretty entry-level stuff, isn't it? Everything hinges on that. Because the fundamental question of Christianity is whether Jesus Christ really came back from the dead. I had a very interesting uh, conversation yesterday in Notting Hill where I minister. Uh, Westbourne Grove is in the parish. So I went for a little walk in my dog collar, a sort of prayer walk around the parish, hoping to bump into and meet some people who live locally. And indeed, I, I took a coffee in the Dalesford, perhaps the most expensive coffee in all of London. Uh, and sat outside in the sunshine, beautiful day yesterday, and just sat there, just, um, just watching the world go by. And a lady was sitting next to me and noticed, I think, the dog collar. She commented on my outfit, because I was sort of smart up top and then jeans down below. So a bit of both. Uh, and she said, I quite enjoy your outfit. And anyway, we got into a conversation with her, and then her friend arrived. And we got into a, a, just a thrilling discussion about faith and Christianity. 
And I was struck, very struck by something her friend said, which that she, she believed that even if uh, the whole thing was made up, she believed that there was value in the faith and values of Christianity, even if it wasn't true. And I strongly but respectfully uh, disagreed with her, saying to her that I'm only in this thing, I only have a dog collar, I only, I only go about preaching in Parliament uh, because I believe it's true that it actually happened, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And I think that's what we see Jesus giving his disciples here. I mean, he can't really help but do it by appearing to them, can he? Because that in itself proves he's alive. But, but Luke himself writes, after his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. It's a rather strange expression, that, isn't it? Needing to give proofs. Proofs that you're alive. It's probably not something that we've ever experienced before, is it? Hopefully. I mean, no one's ever come up to you, have they, and asked, you know, oh, great to see you today. Would you mind providing me with some proof that you're actually alive? <laughs> if I'd come in this afternoon and said, Mark, great to see you, good to be with you last week, just would love some proof that you're actually alive. I mean, you might think, well, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm here. I'm standing in front of you. I'm, I'm speaking with you. Touch me, if you like. Afterwards, over lunch, we might be eating your delicious lunch that you get served over there. And Mark might look across the dinner table and say to me, I'm eating lamb shank. Does this help convince you that I'm alive? All these proofs, just living a normal human life, doing the things that normal, real people do, all of which the risen Jesus did. In this passage, we see that he is there. He's in front of them. He's speaking with them. On one occasion in the Gospels, post his resurrection, we read that he appeared to the disciples and he saw a bit of broiled fish on the side and he took a bit of broiled fish and he ate it there in their presence. Proof that he was physically alive. Because as we all know, ghosts don't eat broiled fish. Or you remember Thomas, most famously, known as Doubting Thomas. I mean, I think he's perfectly reasonable myself. But he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. So they told him and he said, Unless I touch him, unless I put my fingers in his wounds, unless I put my hand in his side, I won't believe. So the next time Jesus appears, he lets Thomas do just that. Thomas's response, my Lord and my God. He worships Jesus. And you know, that is the starting point for anyone who would go in mission, go in the name of Jesus with the gospel. They have to be a worshipper of Jesus Christ. They have to be convinced that he's alive and that he's Lord. This is where it all started to me, uh, for me rather. As I mentioned last week, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, come from a Christian family, I didn't grow up going to church. But at the age of 17, I started having the bigger questions about life. Questions like, why are we here? What's it all about? Is there a God? What does he think of me? What happens when we die? Maybe you're here today with questions similar to those. I had a great friend who was a Christian at the time, and he began inviting me to all this Christian stuff, talks at the Christian Union, inviting me to church in London at the weekend. I began hearing uh, talks that explain the Christian faith, 
in a way that made sense. And eventually he invited me uh, on a camp in the Easter holidays, just before my A-levels. And it was there on the third evening that I heard someone uh, do a talk looking at the evidence for the resurrection. Or really why the tomb was empty. Because history records an empty tomb. The body of Jesus was never found. And people have sought to explain that uh, through many different ways. Some said, well, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he wasn't dead. But then in the cool of the tomb, he revived. And then he rolled away the one-ton stone that blocked uh, the tomb he was in. And he escaped from the guards and ran off, never to be seen again. But that seems unreasonable, I think. Firstly, because the Romans were pretty good at killing people, weren't they? I mean, they crucified quite a lot. And they didn't tend to take you off the cross until you were dead. Secondly, Jesus had been flogged within an inch of his life. Thirdly, he would have needed the strength to roll away that one-ton stone. The fourth, fourthly, escaping from the Roman guards that were put next to the tomb to guard it. So that doesn't seem very reasonable. Secondly, some people say, well, robbers obviously came along and stole the body. But again, the Roman guards. And also, the interesting thing is that the Bible records that the tomb wasn't completely empty. The body was gone, but the grave clothes were still there. The interesting thing about that is the grave clothes were the only thing of value because they, they held all the embalming herbs and spices used to wrap the bodies. So if it was robbers, they were pretty rubbish robbers. They just made off with a corpse. That's the only thing of value. Others have suggested that the disciples stole the body, but again, the Roman soldiers... Bear in mind, for the soldiers, it was punishable with death if they lost uh, the body on this occasion that they were guarding. But also, bear in mind, the mindset of the disciples who were scared, who were discouraged, who, who fled the scene when Jesus was arrested. They'd seen him crucified. They were terrified the same thing would happen to them. They were in hiding. Doesn't sound that reasonable for them to launch this daring bid to steal the body. Others have said, well, the authorities stole the body. But that doesn't make sense either because they wanted Jesus dead and buried, forgotten about. When people started saying, he's risen, he's alive. They would have just got the body and chucked it down in the marketplace and said, there he is, now get on with your normal lives. But they couldn't because they didn't have the body. I still remember today hearing all this evidence being presented and almost like this sort of penny-dropping moment as I realized the only logical conclusion that Jesus Christ is actually still alive. I went from doubting to believing. I went from being cynical to, like Thomas, worshipping. But it all starts with the resurrection. And Jesus knew this, which is why he gives the disciples all the proof that they need. And they went out from there into all the world with boldness and certainty. Now we may not have their experience. We haven't seen the risen Jesus Christ. But we do have their testimony. Their witness in God's word, the scriptures. And if we believe their witness then we too can have the same relationship 
with the risen Lord Jesus as they had. And then we too can go in confidence, telling the world that Jesus is alive. So that's the first thing they needed. And the first thing we need, to go in the knowledge of the resurrection. The second thing I think we see is that we need to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 again, it says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is an astonishing and interesting passage because Jesus speaks very clearly there about what he wants them to do. He wants them to wait for the Spirit. And yet, then, interrupting that verse, we have verse 6, where the disciples speak back to Jesus. They say, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What is going on? Why are they suddenly speaking about the restoration of Israel? Well, it's probably fair to conclude that Jesus must have been speaking in part about that. He basically did Bible studies with them for about 40 days. Uh, in between his resurrection and his ascension. But what he's really wanting to focus on, Jesus, is the part that they now have to play. So he answers them, when they ask about Israel, he answers them, it's not for you to know the times, but you, again putting the focus back on them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So what am I saying? In essence, the exchange looks like this. Jesus focuses on them, teaching them about what's going to happen to them and their need for the Spirit in order to go, establishing God's kingdom. The disciples then speak to Jesus, putting their focus back on him and asking if he's now going to accomplish it. Jesus hears that, but then puts the, the attention back on them and what they need in order to be his witnesses. In other words, God's plan, Jesus is teaching them, is to establish and proclaim his kingdom using them. Jesus is trying to explain to the disciples how he wants to use them to play a part in this. They, however, mishear that bit and they just think that he's going to do it. So Jesus again says, no, I'm going to use you in the meantime. It's a bit like a parent. I imagine some of you are parents. When you're trying to teach your kids, think back to that time, trying to teach your kids to do something new. And you show them how it's done and then you encourage them to go and do it. The kid listens, seems to take it all in, but then after a bit just simply looks at you and says, oh, can't you just do it? <laughs> it's a bit like that, isn't it? And the parent again needs to say, no, now it's your turn. I want you to do it. I want you to play a part. And that's what's going on here with these disciples. Put yourself in their shoes. They've followed him. They've seen him do everything up until then. All the teaching. All the miracles. And now they wanted to keep doing it. But now Jesus is saying, no, I'm releasing you and my ministry to you and the church. It's time for you to proclaim my kingdom. Jesus wants to use them and us to accomplish his purposes in the world today. The purpose of proclaiming and establishing God's kingdom involves you and me in partnership. This book is called the Book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. It's what they did in the power 
of the Holy Spirit. But it's also key to know that they are also the acts of Jesus. As we heard read, verse 2, the start of this reading. Luke says in his first gospel, he began to explain and teach everything that Jesus had begun to do and teach in his first book. In other words, Jesus is continuing to do and teach the same things now through his disciples. They are his acts. And you see, this has consequences for how we see the word of God. Because some people will think that just the gospels are authoritative. Just Jesus' words, that's all we need. But what we see here is that Jesus goes on teaching through his apostles, whom he set apart. This means that the letters of the New Testament, they aren't just the words of Paul or Peter or James or John. They are, in fact, the words of Jesus. They're his letters. And as such, they carry his authority. The apostles had the the Holy Spirit to continue the ministry of Jesus, to preach his kingdom, to go out and heal the sick, raise the dead, Jesus commanded them. And the church today, if you're part of the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to continue that ministry too. It's a high calling, isn't it? You up for it? It's quite intimidating. We can't do it alone, which is why Jesus says, you need the Holy Spirit. The good news today is if you're a Christian, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But Christians have been described a bit like boilers. Probably all got a boiler in your home. I actually put the heating on today, so this illustration works well as the cold sets in. But every boiler has a pilot light. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them. They can be pilot-like Christians. But then when you go and put the heating on, you hear the roar, don't you? As it fires up. And that's the difference between being a pilot-like Christian and a spirit-filled Christian who's asking for more of God in their daily lives. And that's what God wants to do in you and me. He wants to fill us afresh and fire us up and send us out. Because that's what Jesus says we need in order to be a people who go. And the good news today is we can have that. We just need to ask. And if you're not a Christian today, well, you can have it too. Because all you need is to believe in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, in what he's done for you on the cross, dying for you, taking away your sin. All you need to do is put your trust in him and he will come in and live within you by his Holy Spirit then all of us can be a people who go in the knowledge of the resurrection and in the power of the Holy Spirit.